This is one of those stories that has such an outrageous ending that it's genuinely hard to believe it's a true story. But trust me, it is. But before we get into today's story, if you're a fan of the strange, dark, and mysterious delivered in story format, then you come to the right podcast because that's all we do, and we upload twice a week, once on Monday and once on Thursday. So if that's of interest to you, please offer to buy the five-star review button, a 20-piece chicken nugget from McDonald's, but only give them one half-used ranch dipping sauce to go with it. Also, please subscribe to the Mr. Bullen Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any of our weekly uploads. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. With Shopify, you get a selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business, take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash mrballin, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash mrballin to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash mrballin. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. They offer an incredible selection across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mystery and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and much more. Audible is like the place for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations. I personally am a huge fan of the Jack Reacher action series by author Lee Child. It's about this huge dude named Jack Reacher who basically just goes around the country destroying very deserving bad guys. And my favorite is called The Killing Floor, which also happens to be the very first Jack Reacher novel. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to actually keep from the entire catalog. This includes the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash ballin or text ballin to 500-500. That's audible.com slash ballin or text the word ballin to 500-500 to try Audible for free for 30 days. Audible.com slash ballin. Okay, let's get into today's story. On a warm Nebraska evening in late September 2012, 36-year-old Dave Krupa left work feeling better than he had in weeks. He was thinking about the woman he had met that afternoon in the auto body shop where he worked. Dave had been helping another customer when this woman arrived, but as soon as he saw her, he completely forgot about what he was doing and just stared. Her name was Carrie Farber. She was 5 foot 7 inches tall. She was slender and tanned with light brown hair, and she had hazel eyes and a dazzling smile. Dave had suddenly felt like he was right back in high school, all thumbs as he handed change to the customer standing in front of her. Then Carrie stepped to the counter, gave Dave a friendly nod, and told him her black Ford Explorer needed some minor but immediate maintenance work. As they arranged for Carrie to bring her car right then into the service area, David felt an instant sense of ease and attraction between the two of them. The last six months had been difficult for Dave, and unexpected moments like this one were very welcome. 
Dave had moved to Omaha, Nebraska from his home state of Iowa five months earlier in April after he and his longtime girlfriend Amy had both agreed it was time to end their 10-year-long relationship. And once he had arrived in Nebraska, he'd been offered a manager job at this Hyatt Tire auto body shop. The oldest of three brothers born to deeply religious Southern Baptist parents, Dave had worked hard at being a good boyfriend and provider and a great dad. He and his ex-girlfriend Amy had parted on friendly terms and worked out a custody arrangement so Dave could see their two children a couple times a week. But even so, his small, barely furnished apartment not far from the auto body shop had felt depressing. And since Dave had been in this very serious relationship for the last decade, he had arrived in this new city without any idea how to re-enter the dating scene. He had signed up for a dating website called Plenty of Fish within a few weeks of his arrival in town, and over the summer, he had in fact gone on maybe a dozen dates with several women he had met online. But seeing this woman, Carrie, in his auto shop was different. It was the first time in a long time Dave had met someone the old-fashioned way, through a chance in-person encounter rather than by surfing pictures and descriptions posted on the Plenty of Fish website. Now, as Dave walked away from the auto shop over to where his car was parked in the lot to head home for the night, he wished that he had just asked Carrie out on a date when he had a chance to earlier in the day. But at the same time, he thought to himself, you know, it would have been unprofessional or maybe even inappropriate for him to be asking a customer out. And after all, maybe he had just imagined that the attraction he had felt was mutual. Dave climbed into his car, turned the key, and started up the engine. And as he pulled out of the lot, he thought to himself, you know, maybe if Carrie was actually interested in him, she'd come back. Two weeks after meeting Carrie, while Dave was scrolling through profiles on Plenty of Fish, he suddenly felt a rush of excitement. Right there on the screen in front of him was Carrie's picture. Her hair was a little bit different, but the eyes and the smile were the same. She was 37 years old, and she lived an hour away in her hometown of Macedonia, Iowa, and she worked at a computer programming company in Omaha, just a block from Dave's apartment. She was beautiful, and most importantly, she was available. Dave remembered that sense of mutual attraction he believed they had felt in the auto body shop, and so he typed out a message. Hey, I know you. He waited for a minute, then kept on scrolling through other profiles, but he wasn't really looking anymore. He was just hoping to hear the ping of an incoming reply. And he didn't have to wait long. Hey, her text to him read, I know you too. And over the next two weeks, Dave and Carrie would text each other almost every day. And then, about one month after Carrie's first visit to the Hyatt Tire Auto Body Shop, she made a second visit, claiming that her windows were sticking. Standing next to each other in the parking lot, Dave did not even wait to write up the service order. He just immediately asked Carrie if she wanted to go out with him. Carrie said yes, and the next evening, Carrie and Dave were sitting across from each other at the Applebee's Bar and Grill at the Omaha Oakview Mall. And it was great. It was clear that both Carrie and Dave had been thinking about each other over the past month. And now that they were together, Dave found Carrie not only beautiful, but very smart and funny as well. For her part, Carrie found Dave, a former football player who had also served in the National Guard before getting his associate's degree in automotive engineering, attractive and engaging. Carrie liked that Dave was a down-to-earth blue-collar guy who worked with his hands. They were also both single parents who were very involved with their children. They both liked to read and talk about books, they both had busy jobs, and neither of them wanted to take life too seriously. 
A few hours later, Carrie and Dave walked into Dave's apartment, the air between them electric, but before they could even settle in together on the couch, they jumped when they heard the sound of someone knocking on the door. Annoyed, Dave got up from the couch and walked over to the door, and when he looked through the peephole, he wasn't all that surprised at who he saw standing on the other side. Her name was Liz Gallier. She was an attractive, energetic, 37-year-old single mom who ran her own house cleaning business, and she was the first woman Dave had dated since he had arrived in Omaha. Liz and Dave had found each other physically attractive and had had some fun times together, but over the last couple of months, it was clear to both of them that their relationship was really just fizzling out. Earlier that night, while Dave was at Applebee's with Carrie, Liz had texted him asking if she could come by his apartment that evening and just pick up some of her belongings that she had left there. Dave had ignored her, and so wanting to get this over with, Liz had decided to swing by anyways. From Dave's perspective, Liz's timing could not have been worse, and he wished he had just responded to her earlier messages to tell her, you know, hey, come by another day, but he didn't, so here they were in this awkward situation. Before opening the door, Dave turned and briefly explained the situation to Carrie, who was still on the couch, and Carrie appeared to handle the situation well, and she stood up like she was going to leave. Dave then proceeded to open the door and said hello to Liz, and Liz, who saw Carrie, instantly recognized the situation she had just interrupted, and so she turned red in the face and she apologized, and then she just kind of stood there in the doorway not doing anything. Carrie grabbed her bag and looked over at Dave and said, give me a call when you get this sorted out, and then she walked out of his apartment. Neither woman acknowledged the other. However, Liz thought she heard Carrie say, bitch, under her breath as she passed her. Once Carrie was gone, Dave told Liz to come on, come inside, get your things. Liz felt horrible and kept apologizing as she moved around the apartment getting what she needed, but Dave really wasn't listening to her. He just wanted her to leave so he could call Carrie and see if they could maybe still meet up that night. Dave had always been right up front with every woman he dated. He was only interested in casual sex and general companionship. He was not interested in getting married, ever. And in fact, this was the main reason why he was here in Omaha and not back in Council Bluffs, Iowa. His ex-girlfriend, Amy, had finally said to him that if he was not going to propose to her, he needed to leave. And so Dave left. After Liz finally had all of her things, she said a quick goodbye to Dave and then she too hustled out the door. As soon as she was gone, Dave shut the door and then pulled out his cell phone and dialed Carrie's number. Carrie's 14-year-old son, Max, was staying overnight out of the house with Carrie's parents, so when Dave asked Carrie if it was still early enough for him to maybe come over, Carrie immediately said yes. Once Dave arrived, the two of them quickly became intimate, but before heading to the bedroom, it was Carrie, not Dave, who stepped back and said that he should know up front that she was not interested in a serious or exclusive relationship. Dave could not believe his luck. He felt like he had hit the jackpot. Over the next week, Carrie and Dave saw each other every chance they got. Carrie stopped in at Hyatt Tire. Carrie asked for Dave's help in finding her son a used car. Carrie took Dave thrift shopping and started to upgrade the furnishings in Dave's apartment, replacing his broken-down couch with a comfortable silver loveseat. And then, when that week was at an end and Carrie got a big assignment at work, she eagerly accepted Dave's offer to live at his apartment for the following week so she could save two hours of commuting time each day. Carrie's son, Max, would stay with his grandparents. That week they lived together, Dave and Carrie quickly began using pet names for one another, and every morning while he was getting ready for work, Dave would find himself smiling as he listened to the sound of Carrie typing and clicking away on her laptop as she checked her email and Facebook account in the other room. 
On the morning of November 13th, 2012, so just a couple of days into living together in Dave's apartment, Dave got ready for work and then walked over to Carrie, who was still wearing her pajamas and was sitting on the silver love seat she had picked out for him. He gave her a kiss, which she enthusiastically returned, and then he smiled at her and said that he would see her later on, and then he stepped out into the cold. By 6.20 a.m., he was pulling out of the parking lot, making his way to work. A few hours later, at 10 a.m., Dave, who was working on a car at the auto body shop, received a text from Carrie asking him if he wanted to live together permanently. Now, Dave understood that he and Carrie had definitely gotten really, really close, but at the same time, he had been really clear with Carrie about not wanting a serious relationship. That is what made their week together fun, because it was temporary. He didn't like the idea of making it anything more than that. And he was thinking, you know, Carrie made the same claim to him that she didn't want anything serious. And so he responded to her very quickly with a text that just said, no, not interested, thinking he would talk to Carrie later when it wasn't so busy at work. But just 20 seconds after sending that response text, Dave received an angry text message from Carrie breaking off the relationship completely. Her text said, fine, I hate you. I'm dating someone else and I don't want to see you anymore. And when Dave got home that night, it looked like Carrie had made good on her threat. Right down to her toothbrush, all of her things that were in Dave's apartment were now gone. Dave was shaken, but it didn't take long for reality to set in. He'd been on dates with other women who had agreed, in theory, to casual, non-exclusive relationships, only to change their minds after a couple of dates. And so this seemed like that type of situation that, you know, Carrie was revealing how she actually felt. And so it wasn't long before Dave's shock gave way to relief. It was probably for the best that this ended now. But it turned out that Carrie was not done with Dave, at least not yet. Within two days, Dave's phone started blowing up with texts and emails from Carrie. She may have taken her things out of Dave's apartment, but it was instantly clear that she was not going to leave him alone. At first, the messages were angry and jealous. Carrie hated him. He had ruined her life. He was a terrible person. And even though Carrie told him she had quit her job at the computer company, which was down the road from Dave, it was clear from some of these text messages that she had to still be close by. One very creepy text Dave received said, My favorite thing to do is to stand outside and stare at you. It wasn't long before the tone of these messages and emails shifted from vindictive and insulting to blatantly threatening. I hate you so much that I want to drive a knife into your heart, read one message. I will destroy your life and take your happiness, read another. And more and more of the texts seemed aimed not only at Dave, but also at Liz, the woman who had shown up at Dave's place on the night of Carrie and Dave's first date. One text Dave received from Carrie said, Liz was a fat, ugly whore who deserved to die. And not long after that, Liz would actually call Dave to tell him that Carrie was sending her directly these vulgar and threatening text messages and emails. Within two weeks of the breakup, Dave and Liz were receiving dozens of texts and hang-up calls as well as 50 or more emails every single day from Carrie. By November 23rd, 10 days after the breakup, Liz had had enough. She had walked into her garage that morning only to find the words whore from Dave spray-painted on the wall. 
Liz immediately contacted the Omaha Police Department to report the vandalism, along with her suspicion that Carrie Farver was the person behind the property damage, given the harassing messages she and Dave had been receiving. But the police really couldn't do much about it because they couldn't find Carrie. After she broke up with Dave on November 13th, she had vanished. It was believed she was in hiding somewhere to avoid being arrested for all of the stalking she was doing. So the texts and emails just kept coming in, including disturbing messages that sounded like this. Dave, I can see you. You're sitting in your chair with your feet propped up. You're wearing a blue shirt. Ironically, this horrible situation actually brought Dave and Liz together again because there was no one else who would understand what they were going through. They had tried to get the police involved, but there just wasn't much they could do, and so Dave and Liz had just begun to accept that this was their life. And while it might seem unimaginable to other people, to them, it had just become a new and horrible kind of normal. It was not uncommon for them to be sitting on the couch together when they would both suddenly receive a barrage of text messages from Carrie. Meanwhile, the Omaha Police Department wasn't the only law enforcement agency that had been made aware of Carrie Farber. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. On November 16th, so that's three days after the breakup, Carrie's mother, Nancy, had filed a missing persons report with the Macedonia Police Department in Iowa. When the police eventually followed up on the report by talking with Dave, Dave felt like he finally understood how Carrie, who had seemed so put together and independent when he had first met her, could have changed seemingly overnight into this crazy stalker person. The police would tell Dave that Carrie had a mental health condition called bipolar disorder, which can cause violent and sudden mood swings and bouts of depression, alternating with episodes of mania where its sufferers behave in erratic and unpredictable ways. But despite that adding some clarity to the situation, it didn't actually do anything to help Dave or Liz. They were still just getting nonstop harassed by Carrie. No matter how many times they changed their phone numbers and opened new email accounts, Carrie, with her vast knowledge of computers and technology, always found a way to find them again and continue cyberstalking them. As for Carrie, since going missing on November 13th, 
She had blown off a family wedding, her son's birthday, and even her own father's funeral, apologizing by text and email to her family, but asking that they leave her alone because she needed some space. In January 2013, so a couple of months after the breakup, Omaha police thought maybe they'd gotten a break in the Carrie Farber case when Dave spotted her black Ford Explorer in a parking lot near his apartment. But the inside of the car was wiped clean, and the only item of interest was a metal container of mints with a single fingerprint on them that did not match with that of any known criminal. At that point, Dave and Liz willingly turned over their phones to law enforcement for examination, but police found nothing on them that would help them close in on Carrie. Still, as long as there was a missing person report on Carrie Farber, police could not close the case until they had located her. In the summer of that year, both Dave and Liz attempted once again to try to move on with their respective lives. At the end of the summer, Liz and her two children planned to move out of their rented house and move in with a former boyfriend, and Dave started spending more time with his kids back in Iowa. But the harassment continued. When Dave received an email from Carrie threatening to kill Liz and showing a photo of a woman tied up in the trunk of a car, Dave called Liz, who assured him she was not the woman in the picture and that she was okay. But Liz was not okay for very long. On August 17th of that year, so nine months after Dave and Carrie had broken up, someone set fire to Liz's rented house. And while Liz and her children were not inside the house when it burned, all four of the family's pets were killed. When she checked her email later that day, Liz saw there was one from Carrie that had been sent just a few hours before the fire had started. And it said, I hope you and your children burn to death. Liz was terrified and absolutely beside herself. She had struggled through a terrible childhood, losing both of her parents by the time she was just three years old, and then she had grown up in the foster care system, and now everything that she had managed to build up in her life was being destroyed. Her housekeeping business was failing, her boyfriend had to help her with the bills, and her children were in danger, all because of Carrie, a woman she didn't even know. Dave, racked with guilt over involving Liz in this mess, now feared for his own family. He began to drink more heavily and he purchased a gun. Even as the police continued their investigation, the intrusions into Dave's life didn't just continue, they intensified. The auto body shop where Dave worked was vandalized. In January of 2014, while Dave was in his apartment with a date, his door handle was shaken from the outside and then a brick was thrown through his window. Dave's ex-girlfriend, Amy Flora, the mother of his two children, had also received threatening messages from Carrie. It seemed like anyone involved in Dave's life was becoming a target. Then, in 2015, the Carrie Farver case blew wide open. Since losing her home and pets in the fire two years earlier, Liz had been doing a lot of thinking. Even as she continued to receive texts, emails from Carrie, Liz wondered if maybe there was someone else behind the attacks. It just didn't make sense to her that the police had not found Carrie and that Carrie would still be going after Liz, who was not even in any kind of serious relationship with Dave. So on December 4th of that year, Liz got in her car and drove to the Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Office in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and there she told a new team of investigators who had already started to review all of the files in the Carrie Farber case that she wanted to file a restraining order, not against Carrie Farber, 
but against Amy Flora, Dave's ex-girlfriend and the mother of his kids. When asked why, she told investigators she now believed that the person who had been sending her and Dave these thousands of text messages and emails and who had turned their lives into living hells was not Carrie Farver, but Amy Flora. And Liz believed that Carrie was not on the run or in hiding, but rather Amy had likely made Carrie disappear and then taken over all of her email and phone accounts. Liz knew this was a very serious allegation, but to her it made a lot of sense. After Dave had left her, Amy had the strongest motivation to seek revenge and to punish him for abandoning her and their children. Intrigued, the investigators asked Liz if they could download the contents of her cell phone and review all of the messages to date that were on there, and Liz immediately agreed. After nearly three years of this absolute madness, she was finally feeling hopeful that the police might actually put an end to it. However, Liz's nightmare was about to get a whole lot worse. At 6.42 p.m., the very next day on the evening of December 5th, police received a frantic 911 call from the Big Lake Park in Council Falls, Iowa. It was Liz. When the police and an ambulance arrived, Liz was lying in this huge pool of blood right next to her car, and she would tell investigators that she had been sitting at a bench a little ways away when someone had come up behind her and they had jabbed a gun into her back, but she didn't recognize it as a gun. She thought someone had poked her. And so she kind of stood up and turned around to see what they were doing. And then they fired their gun at her, narrowly missing her midsection. The bullet had gone into her thigh and then also narrowly missed her bone and major arteries. And this gunman had turned and just ran away. Liz would say it was too dark to get a good look at who the shooter was. However, she was reasonably certain it was a woman. And so she told investigators it had to be Amy Flora. Who else would shoot her? At 7 p.m. that night, police arrived on Amy's doorstep with guns drawn, and they took her into the station for questioning. And despite insisting that she had been home with her kids all evening, Amy failed the lie detector test. But since they could not break Amy's alibi, the police had to let her go. On December 7th, so three days after the shooting, the police requested the cell phones belonging to Dave Krupa and Amy Flora. And then about two weeks later, using that information they had pulled from those phones, amongst other evidence they had collected, the police finally felt like they had reached a conclusion. And so they called Liz into the station, who by now was still very badly hurt from the gunshot wound, but now she was able to walk around on crutches. And they asked her if she'd be willing to help them bring Amy Flora to justice. Like Liz had previously suggested when she went to file a restraining order against Amy, the police now believed that Carrie had in fact been murdered and her identity then used to perpetrate a three-year-long campaign of harassment and intimidation against Dave and Liz. But to make the charges stick, they needed incriminating evidence and they wanted Liz to reach out to Amy via email or text to see if Amy would give up any information. After they promised a terrified Liz that she would have full protection from them, she agreed to help. And sure enough, after only a few email exchanges, Liz got Amy so angry and riled up that she started talking about what she had done, and Liz just forwarded these messages to the police. 
And in these forwarded messages, Amy admitted to shooting Liz, almost like she was trying to brag about it. And shockingly, Amy also admitted to having killed Carrie, saying that she had died inside of her own Black Ford Explorer. And sure enough, a second examination of Carrie's Black Ford Explorer would lead investigators to find blood under the seats that belonged to Carrie. Police also found a match for that unknown fingerprint on the metal container of mints that was inside of Carrie's car. With all of this new evidence, it was now crystal clear who had killed Carrie and then relentlessly persecuted Dave and Liz. And that person was not Amy Flora. It was Liz. Eight months later, on December 22, 2016, in a case that would make national headlines, police arrested 41-year-old Liz Gallier for first-degree murder and the death of Carrie Farber. Liz was also charged with second-degree arson in the deliberate destruction of her rented house where she lived and where all four of her children's pets were burned to death. When investigators had downloaded the contents of cell phones and memory cards belonging to Liz, Dave, and Amy, along with the data from Dave's devices that Liz had access to, all the awful emails and text messages in the last three years, more than 60,000 of them, had IP addresses that could all be traced back to Liz. Most incriminating of all were pictures belonging to Liz that appeared to show Carrie's decomposing foot identifiable because of the distinctive tattoo that was still visible across the bridge of the foot. It would turn out that Liz Gallier's obsession with Dave Krupa began almost immediately after their first date back in late spring of 2012. And by the time she passed Carrie Farver in Dave's apartment doorway during that awkward meeting, Liz knew any chance of a serious relationship with Dave was slipping out of reach. The text that Dave received from Carrie's phone on the morning of November 13th at around 10 a.m. about wanting to move in together permanently and every harassing and threatening text, email, and suspicious phone call that he, Amy, and Carrie's family would receive over the next three and a half years would all be the work of Liz Gallier. Using more than 30 different imposter email accounts, along with an app that allowed her to schedule the release of texts and emails so they arrived while she was actually with Dave, prosecutors estimated that Liz would eventually spend 40 to 50 hours every week impersonating Carrie Farver and using Carrie's own Facebook account to create the illusion that Carrie was in fact still alive. The ongoing drama would force Dave to reach out to Liz, and every time he began to pull away, she would just ratchet up the pressure and guilt Dave for bringing Carrie into Liz's life, first with acts of vandalism like spray-painting her own garage wall, and later with more violent attacks, setting fire to her own home, throwing a brick through Dave's apartment window, vandalizing the auto store, and then finally, shooting herself in the leg. When Dave showed a renewed interest in his ex-girlfriend, Amy, and told Liz he planned to move back in with her in 2016, Liz made a last-ditch attempt to derail that romance and divert attention by framing Amy for the crimes Liz herself had committed. But by late 2015, Liz would get hopelessly entangled in her own lies. By the time she walked into the police station to ask for a restraining order against Amy, police already completely suspected Liz, who seemed way too involved in every aspect of the Carrie Farber case. Even though Amy had failed the lie detector test when she was questioned about shooting Liz, Amy was actually never a serious suspect, and her alibi was unbreakable. But 
by pretending to ask for Liz's help in incriminating Amy, police were able to push Liz into revealing her own deceptions. Although Carrie's body was never found, the evidence and testimony presented by prosecutors at Liz Gollier's trial paint a sad and grisly picture of Carrie Farver's last moments. Three years earlier, after Dave had kissed Carrie goodbye and stepped out into the cold morning air of November 13, 2012, Carrie would finish her coffee, close up her laptop, and get herself ready for work. Once she was ready, she too stepped out into the cold morning air to head into her office. And when Carrie got into her black Ford Explorer in the parking lot, Liz Gollier, who likely had been hiding and waiting nearby, just waiting for Carrie to come outside, rushed over to her vehicle and somehow convinced Carrie to let her get inside with her. And then shortly after Liz was in the passenger seat, she pulled out a knife and reached across the center console and stabbed Carrie repeatedly in the stomach at least three or four times. It's believed Carrie knew she was going to die and began pleading with Liz to allow her to call her family to at least say goodbye. But Liz just said no and restrained her until she bled to death. Afterward, Liz took Carrie's keys and went into Dave's apartment and took all of Carrie's things out so it would look like she had left him. And then Liz drove Carrie's car with Carrie's body inside of it to some unknown location where she pulled Carrie's body out, burned it, and then disposed of it in a dumpster. Then Liz wiped Carrie's car down to remove any evidence. However, she didn't realize she had left lots of Carrie's blood underneath the seats, as well as her own fingerprint on that mint can. Liz Gollier is currently serving a life sentence at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women, 107 miles southwest of Omaha, where she first met Dave Krupa. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Ballin podcast. If you got something out of this episode and you haven't done this already, please offer to buy the five-star review button a 20-piece chicken nugget from McDonald's, but only give them one half-used ranch dipping sauce to go with it. Also, please subscribe to the Mr. Ballin podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. This podcast airs every Monday and Thursday morning, but in the meantime, you can always watch one of the hundreds of stories I have posted on my YouTube channel, which is just called Mr. Ballin. If you want to get in touch with me, please follow me on any major social media platform and then send me a direct message. My username on all platforms is just at Mr. Ballin, and I really do read the majority of my DMs. Lastly, we have some really cool merchandise, so head on over to shopmrballin.com to have a look. So that's going to do it. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, see ya. Hey, Prime members, you can binge eight new episodes of the Mr. Ballin podcast one month early and all episodes ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. And before you go, please tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hey, listeners, it's me, Mr. Ballin. I appreciate you all being fans of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious, but let's be honest, sometimes you need a bit of humor to go alongside true crime. That's where the Morbid Podcast comes in. It's a lighthearted nightmare over there. Hosted by Elena, an autopsy technician, and Ash, a hairstylist, at its core, Morbid is a true crime, creepy history, and all things spooky podcast. 
But when Ash and Elena get together and tell stories, they do so in a way that not only shows the depth and detail of their research, but each episode also includes a touch of humor, a dash of sarcasm, and is garnished with just a little bit of cursing. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Morbid early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.